0: short for a stormtrooper. Huh? Oh, the uniform. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you.
1: Good old Luke Skywalker, along with Han Solo, of course, may have been the first official Star Wars cosplayers on record when they dressed up as stormtroopers to break out the princess. And on this planet, Well, there are cosplayers doing good deeds all over the globe.
0: Could villains
2: possibly do good? That might sound like a strange question, and we're about to find out the answer. It all starts at this children's hospital in the heart of Israel. In their armor, these Star Wars characters, mostly from the 501st Legion, a worldwide Star Wars costuming organization, may look intimidating. But what they're about to do might surprise you
3: we are the bad guys doing good what we do is we try and visit a different children's hospital once a month and uh we're in character and uh we hopefully spread the joy of star wars to the to the community in israel we can actually look like the the characters themselves because we're helmeted characters mostly uh so we can look exactly like uh exactly like the bad guys
1: this story from i24 news in israel captures it all The power of villains performing good deeds. Back here in the States, you can see the 501st appearing everywhere from hospitals to sporting events, parades, and more. While the characters of Stormtroopers Darth Vader and Kylo Ren are the faces we recognize, it's the people beneath the costumes that are the real special part. The 501st was founded in 1997
3: and is a costuming organization that has spread the magic of the Star Wars genre worldwide through its authentic-looking costumes and, according to its website, has become the leading force in fan-based charity events. The 501st, which is also referred to as Vader's Fist, dedicates itself to brightening the lives of those less fortunate. The 501st founder, Albin Johnson, who goes by TK210, chose the name of the group to represent a fictional unit of Imperial stormtroopers. Author Timothy Zahn, with the approval of Lucasfilm, honored the 501st by incorporating the name into his Star Wars novel Survivor's Quest in 2004. Survivor's Quest is a part of the expanded universe that focuses on Luke Skywalker and Mara Jade post-Return of the Jedi, but we'll have to talk about that in a different episode. According to the 501st's website, the group's name has continued to appear in official Star Wars material, including books, toys, and video games, and even has its own section in the StarWars.com databank.
1: From Brain Kick Productions, I'm Keith Padine. And I'm John Gostadis. And we want to know, why do we love Star Wars?
3: Episode 3, What a Piece of Junk, Part 2.
1: Cosplay. It means different things to different people. Take me, for example. I've got a great X-Wing t-shirt, and that's kind of cosplay light. The folks in the 501st, well, they show us how it's done, and display their passion in a most elevated way.
4: I'll say first off that, you know, any level that people want to do their own cosplay at is, is fantastic. And I encourage it in all levels, whether it's just wearing a t-shirt or it's going out and putting face makeup on and going the full, full nine yards. Lou
1: Secchi is a member of the Connecticut garrison of the 501st, as well as a host on the Star Wars podcast, Force Chatter.
4: You know, for me now it's become almost an obsession. I've got, I don't know, three or four of the costumes in the works that I'm working on slowly and, you know, not making as much progress as I'd like to, but, you know, hopefully I have a couple other costumes approved uh, in fairly short order. Um, But it's just, there's so much detail in this stuff. And some of it, you look at it and you get kind of silly, like, well, no one's ever going to see this. It's on the inside of the costume, but it's that way. It's the way it should be. Um, Others, it's like, well, this is good enough and I'll be happy with what's what's out there. So, I mean, there's room for everybody that maybe not approved in the final first, but in cosplay, you know, you can do whatever you'd like to be. And now I watch new content and I'm like... (gasps) Look at that new costume! Oh my god, a new helmet! Or oh my god, something really cool! You know, this week's episode of The Mandalorian had this, and oh my god, look at all the new colors we can get into! So, it's, it's now it's that rabbit hole of well, now now what do I do? Because <laughs> I I want to build everything.
1: And the time they put in really shows their dedication to this craft, not only on constructing their costumes, but also for all the volunteer work they participate in throughout the year.
4: The first one, well, the only one I did is. I don't even know how much time I have into it for hours, but it was, it was considerable, <laughs> but it was a lot of learning curve too. It was how do you do this? How do you do that? I got to read this. I got to watch this video. I got to see how this guy painted that or how to, I had to learn how to put snaps on something now. I got to get the right tools for that. And, you know, now I'm starting to learn how to sew. So that's a whole nother aspect of what I needed to learn to do. And um, it, it can be as much or as little as you'd like. I mean, I know some people that have basically commissioned costumes to be p- built for them. Um, and that's perfectly acceptable. Um, you know, it, they'll, they'll do some work on their own, but the majority of the work was done by somebody else. Um, and then it'll, then allows them to go out and do the, the troops and the, and the charity events that we do that we all love so much that gets exposure to, you know, us, to people that, that need our help and want our help and the smiling faces we see when we're out there in costume in the interactions they have with people and characters they never thought they would meet in person. Um, You know, the joy on the face of, of a six year old kid or a 40 year old guy can be the same because you're like, Oh oh my God, this is just amazing. Um, But, but also it is, you know, from a fandom standpoint, it is, it's cool for us to get into the costumes that we have and you know, it's a cool costume. It's also a lot of love and time we spent putting that costume together. Um, You know, it's, it's just the amount of effort we put into it makes you want to shine even more when you put that together and and wear it out in in public. Um, But, you know, For the most part, it, it, and I haven't had the chance to do as many of the hospital things that like Quentin has done because usually it's during the week and I've, I've got a work schedule I can't really do those at. So I've been into more events where it's just more of a public relations type thing, either at a hockey game or a convention, that kind of stuff. But even then, you still get that, that, that interaction with people that, that just love to see what you've done and interact with things that they've always wanted to see on screen or off screen.
3: Playing with the toys made us feel a part of it. Meeting our favorite characters face-to-face is a life memory. But things were about to get even more real when George Lucas found a way to bring his world to the Disney
5: theme parks. For a long time, I've been interested in trying to get involved with the, the Disneyland theme park. And um, for years, I you know, discussed it with uh, the management of Disney. And um, eventually, it came about that... Um, they accepted my offer to be involved and that um, we would sort of combine ideas.
3: All right, John, we got to pause Mr. Lucas here for a second, because this is the first time that we've really brought up the Disney parks in any conversation with what we have here. And and before George got in there and started doing things, you know, Disneyland was its own thing. And when we're talking about the popular pop culture aspect of entertainment, the one that we've always said might be a little bit bigger than Star Wars is Disney itself, right? The Walt Disney Company. And Disneyland, Disney World are this place where we can physically be a part of that pop culture phenomenon. Now, you and I visited together. We went to Disneyland on a trip. I think it was like 2008-2008.
0: I'll we, take
1: your word on that. Yeah,
3: I think it was like, it was, it was, we were both right around getting, I think it was right after you had gotten married um, and we had there was no kids yet. And, but we went out there, I came out to California, we did a bunch of different stuff, but we did Disneyland one of the days. And so here we were two guys in 2008. Oh my gosh. We were, you know, almost 30, maybe somewhere in our late twenties, perhaps. I guess. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't do math. I leave that to my nine year old son, but we went to Disneyland for the day. Right. You took off from work. You said, all right, Keith, let's go. And we ran to Disneyland. Um, And it's such a different world than Disney World, where it's all about buses and all this stuff. Like Disneyland, you drive your car, you park it in the parking lot and you walk in the door. But again, you become kind of surrounded by the IP, the intellectual property of Disney. It's all around you. Um, Now, I'm, I'm without even having like tested you on this, John. There's a test. Oh, yeah. The ride we were most excited to go on was what?
1: Uh, Pirates of the Caribbean?
3: Pirates of the Caribbean, right? <laughs> Without doubt. And we went there, and I remember you and I walked up, and first of all, we were like, where are all the people? Because for some reason, on this random fall day, it was like an empty park.
1: It was a Tuesday, so it was. It's, if, I feel like it was an off day. The kids were back in school, but you and I were out there to play.
3: All right, that's impressive that you remember it was a Tuesday.
1: I'm going to go with Tuesday. Okay, we'll go with it.
3: But it was it was relatively empty, and we went over to uh, – now, you have to – Bear with me. I'm a Disney World guy. I've been to Disneyland a very small hand of times. It's it's New Orleans Square, right? Has the, the Pirates ride. That's right. And you go into this old like New Orleans building you kind of walk into. And the ride is actually out in the open. Like the the beginning of the ride is like in an open area where you get on the boat, right?
1: uh it's uh you have to kind of go th- well the line is outside but then you go inside through the doors and it's it's got like this you know New Orleans feel to the building but then it's inside it's blue bayou is the restaurant right there oh yeah and it's all all enclosed where you kind of board the boats and you and i ate at uh, blue Bayou too didn't we we did and yeah. uh
3: I remember that meal very specifically i remember you had a mint julep A mint julep. That's correct. You were very excited about the mint julep. And we had wedge salads, which made us just feel fancy. (laughs) How do you
1: remember? How how did I have a wedge salad? Because I think it might have been the
3: first time I've ever had a wedge salad. I I think (laughs) it was like a prefixed menu. And so you you had to choose between, do you want like a Caesar salad or a wedge salad? I was like, yeah, I'll have a big wedge of iceberg lettuce with some dressing on it. Get clear wedge. You can't do any more good (laughs) back there beautiful and so and you actually in disney you sit in the ride like you watch the people on the ride go by you while you're in this little blue bayou (laughs) uh, place where you eat dinner (laughs) and i remember the desserts had like a little chocolate like pirate flag
1: on it yeah i I feel like it was an ice cream thing but the sails were made out of chocolate or something
3: yes either way it's it's all-encompassing thing right so that's what we're talking about this tangible element of fandom and we went on pirates and we had loved the Pirates movie, um, and and so we went on Pirates, and it was a five minute wait. It was you know we more or less walked through the queue and got right on the boat and went on the ride. Right, we went through the the foggy mist thing with with uh, Bill Nighy and and you know his uh, squid face welcoming you and trying to scare you as you go down the little dip and Davy Jones. Yes, that's it, Davy Jones. Thank you. And you go through the ride and you enjoy it. And there's, there's Johnny Depp's Jack Sparrow, which has been added to the ride since it originally came out. And, you know, all the different scenes the, the bring out the redhead and the, the auction and the people chasing each other and animals and that smell of the burning, you know, town of Tortuga and all these things. And we get off the boat and we walk back out of the building and we look at each other and the, there's still no one in line. Why not? It was like. It was like they shut down pirates for you and I to go on this day. They're like, these people need a ride. And we went on it again. And by the end, (laughs) do you remember how many times we went on it?
1: I believe it was five times. It was five times.
3: Five times we went on this ride. And I remember the last time we decided to go on it, we were on (laughs) the ferry boat, the giant like paddle boat, the river boat, the Mark Twain that goes around the river inside Disneyland. And we looked from the, the the top level of the boat, and we saw again. There's still no line. And Pirates were like, "Do we go again? We go again. We go again." And it was you find something different every time, right? That was kind of what we were doing. Like each ride, we're like, "No, no, no! Look over there. There's like check out that little crab, or check out that skeleton, or check out the way they were doing this. There's this difference to it." That made it different, even though we went on at five different times, you know. And we had specific food we were looking for. We did a lot of the classics. I know we went on the Jungle Boat Cruise together. Uh, we went um, to the Tiki Room and we sat through the Tiki Room show.
1: <laughs> can I? Can I have a little? Uh, I didn't enjoy that very much. <laughs> the Tiki Show. Yeah, I, I, it was. I was kind of like, uh, I was sad to be there. <laughs> <laughs>
3: As a music creator, your ears are just slowly bleeding down the sides of your head.
1: There's something about the repetitive aspect of that music that I yeah. think after a while I'm like, okay, okay, okay. It's better than Small World. Okay. Well, you know, well, that's, that's definitely the pinnacle of repetition.
3: Yeah. And then I'm trying to think. So I'm not a roller coaster guy. But at Disney, it's weird. At Disney, I have no problem going on a roller coaster. And I, don't, I think it's just different. Um, and I know that we went on Everest. Yeah. Matterhorn? That's the one Matterhorn. That's what it is. Okay, So it was the Matterhorn bobsleds. There we go. Everest is at the animal kingdom Matterhorn at Disneyland. And we got in and I remembered there was like, what the guy seemed to be like 10 years old who was checking our seatbelts <laughs> and, and he's checking your seatbelt to see if you're right. And I'm nervous because it's, it's a, you know, it's a roller coaster. And I remember leaning forward to you cause you're like in front of me in this bobsled. And I was like, I don't think this guy put the seatbelt on, right? I think I'm going to die on this. (laughs) And the 10-year-old just walks you're okay, sir. And he walked away. And I was like, okay, well, here we go. And again, it makes you part of this environment. So you go through and you're like, I'm on this roller coaster. But then you go into the mountain and you see like the flags that are hanging everywhere and you've got the feel of it. Um, And we went through the ride and it has the big dip thing at the end. And it was like, oh, great. You want to go on that five times? no. No. (laughs) we're good. We're going to, we're going to track that up with the tiki room is something we did once and let's move on.
1: Everybody's got their thing. Some things, you know, you want to do that I do. We do, you know, I think we were both very generous with each other in terms of what we wanted to experience while we were there.
3: It was. And you know, there's a part of it, you know, we talk about playtime, right? So here we are late twenties, early thirties and we went and played at Disneyland. Now I was working at a farm at the time. So it wasn't like I could bring my work with me because I wasn't like off planting pumpkins on the side on a Tuesday, but you were still getting phone calls from your office throughout the day because you're, you know, you're, you're, you're an important kind of guy. And so you like that world (laughs) kept trying to interrupt you. I remember one of them, like your phone rang while you were trying to pull the sword out of the stone. (laughs) I don't remember that. And, you know, so it kept kind of taking us out of, this world yeah. and this this thing and the one thing we wanted was we found this place it was i forget what it was called it was supposed to have the conestoga fries
6: and it was oh, supposed to right it
3: was this thing that was supposed to look like a covered wagon and that's all right. we were excited about was these fries because these fries yeah. are great and everybody loves these fries
1: everybody and goes to the Canastoga or conestoga canstotoga. We, we, canstotoga i don't think we
3: could say it then either.
1: canstotoga wagon
3: needless to say it was completely boarded up it was completely it was covered by fences and we couldn't get to it. So we're like, all right, well, one of my favorite rides is the Haunted Mansion. So let's go over to the Haunted Mansion. And no, <laughs> also closed. Because it was it was like September when we went. It was in the fall and and they were getting it ready for Halloween, right? So it, right. Was, it was closed for Halloween. But what we did have was – and we talked about my trip to California, to Pasadena in a previous episode – but it was that same year, that was when we saw the Three Amigos. It was the same year uh, that we also went to Disneyland with my grandparents. And my, I refused to go on the Haunted Mansion because I was scared. Like I, ghosts freak me out. The paranormal freaks me out. I didn't want to go in as a kid. I, I totally changed, which I finally got on it when I was a little bit older. But I remember that my brother and my grandmother went on the ride and I stayed out of the building with my grandfather. But we had a churro right there and we had a churro at this little stand right outside the haunted mansion. And when you and I went and there's this sign that says the haunted mansion is closed, sorry, so long, you know, come back another time. What did we get?
1: We got the best churros in the park right there.
3: We got the churros at that same stand 20 years later. And then it was a couple years later that you had actually a, randomly one day texted me a picture of your wife. <laughs> with a churro raised above her head like He-Man holds his sword, holding the churro, standing in front of the haunted mansion. And it's become part of this lexicon of our our friendship, right? It became part of this thing that is a conversation with us. But, you know, like when we were there, John, and even though, you know, the phone calls came and we had to worry about where we parked our car and we had to worry about, you know, the different things that we were going to do the rest of our day – There's a part of it, and tell me if I'm wrong, but there's a part of it where you kind of for a moment can lose yourself into your imagination.
1: I think there were moments. uh, They were brief, you know. um, But, yeah, as you get older, it's a little harder to ignore, you know, some of the the behind-the-scenes things. But they do a really good job of enveloping your senses so that you feel like you're in that world, which is really cool.
3: And they're worlds that you know, right? So, I mean, you know, like... You feel like you're in New Orleans when you're in New Orleans Square. You feel like you're in the frontier when you're down in frontier land. You feel like all of these things. And then we went to Universal the day after, which was such a letdown when you let Universal at the time, <laughs> you know, compare like – because they had right with the backdraft ride. You yeah, know which was
1: like 20 years old at the time. And like do, do people know what that movie is anymore? It's probably not.
3: But, it, you know, but like it didn't have a world like it does now with Harry Potter. It didn't have a world – that surrounded you the way Disneyland and Disney World does. And you know, I, I think back to it. And when we were, we we're going to talk about Disneyland and we we're talking about Disney parks, like so I remember I wanted to talk you and I to talk about that day because it was something that we spent together, not caring that we were 28 years old and these these two guys like walking around the parks, not kids and what have you. But of all these memories that like I can remember and these things like I mean, we talk about specifics like the Constanoga Fry or whatever it's called. But, like, I have no memory, really, of going to Tomorrowland. I know we must have gone there and done some of those things, but, like, I really have no memory of it from our trip.
1: I I know. I don't think that Tomorrowland really stood out at that time. Um, they had Star Tours, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and they had Space Mountain. Did we go on Space Mountain?
3: I don't think we did.
1: Yeah, I, I feel like Tomorrowland... Um, it, it's really lackluster, uh, or at least it, it was in, in 2008. It's gotten a little bit better now, um, mm-hmm. as they've incorporated more Star Wars, um, a, in the, in the California Disneyland, they have a stage that rises up right outside of the, um, the, the Tomorrowland food court. And, you know, the music starts and Darth Vader comes out, you know, with all the, the stormtroopers and, that's where they do the Jedi training for the kids and you have to sign up in advance, you know, Mm -hmm. for everything that Disney does, they do really want you to sign on early, um, sign up for things early and kind of get, you know, organized early. if you don't, um, well, like my kids experienced, um, dad, can I do that? No, no, (laughs) you can't. Uh, we didn't sign up last week. It was, it's been filled since March. So, you know, um, but yeah, so they've been slowly incorporating more Star Wars things into Tomorrowland. But yeah, I, I feel like it's a, you know, it, it could be seen as a little bit outdated compared to um, some of the other aspects of the park.
3: Yeah, and, and I don't think we were alone in this because before Star Tours even showed up there, the, the rising platform with Vader and all that, George Lucas knew that Tomorrowland was the place that needed some help too.
5: I wanted to have a, an involvement in Tomorrowland. I thought that was a portion of the park that had always been a little less than what it could have been. And um, so they've given me the opportunity to include my characters into that part of the park and try to uh, come up with some new ideas, which is real exciting. It's something, it's a little offbeat from what I normally do, but it's uh, a real exciting creative challenge.
3: This 1987 interview with Lucas was a part of the official press kit from Disney Parks. And What came from this involvement?
6: In a kingdom very near. Arthur, ah, do hurry. The passengers
5: are boarding.
6: Prepare yourselves. Welcome aboard. For the newest thrill attraction from the imaginations of Disney and George Lucas. Because now the adventure is real. Star Tours. The newest thrill in the universe. At Disneyland.
3: Immediately, Star Wars fans had a new favorite ride.
2: The first things that I ever experienced in the parks was Star Tours, both in Disneyland and Walt Disney World in Hollywood Studios.
1: Kirk Lavecchia owns walruscarp.com, a website dedicated to Disney theme park-related clothing, and is a well-respected Disney and amusement park vlogger spending multiple days a week, every week, in the parks, sharing all kinds of, as he puts it, Hacks, snacks, and fun facts.
2: My first relationship was boarding uh, with, with Rex and driving around and flying around. And just that experience was so incredible.
1: If you've ever been to Disney World or Disneyland, there's little doubt that you've been on the ride. But if you haven't, Star Tours allows theme park guests to become space tourists and load into a motion simulator shuttle. The ride uses video imagery to launch passengers into familiar places throughout the Star Wars galaxy, complete with dips, dives, and even taking on laser fire. If you've ever dreamed of taking off into space, traveling at light speed, and chasing intergalactic
2: bad guys, then Star Tours, the newest Tomorrowland attraction at Disneyland in California, is for you. Some say it's the ultimate thrill experience, and others... Well, they're a bit more descriptive.
0: I loved it. It was the most exciting thing I have ever been on. It was really like being there. It was just the best. It was so good. I thought that it was the best attraction in Disneyland. Why? Because it's so fast and it looks like you're really moving.
3: And as George Lucas has exhibited all along the way, he changed how things were being done. This was no static style roller coaster. This ride was customizable.
5: One of the basic ideas behind this is that it's reprogrammable. It relies a lot on software rather than hardware so that the ride can be changed rather swiftly uh, relatively to, relative to the way normal rail rides, hardware rides are you know, changed. And I think this will give us a big advantage in being able to upgrade the ride uh, after you know, a certain period of time. Uh, to, uh, you know, improve it or change it or, you know, make it into something else.
1: More after the break.
3: For decades, star tours, character parades, the Star Wars launch bay, and more have greeted Star Wars fans at the Disney parks. Then in 2019, after Lucas sold Lucas Films to Disney, the inevitable happened.
2: Star Wars Galaxy's
4: Edge, opening May 31st at Disneyland Resort and August 29th at Walt Disney World
3: Resort. With Galaxy's Edge now here, our beloved franchise has become a full-bodied experience. When you turn the corner to enter Batuu, the new planet created for Galaxy's Edge, it truly feels that, for the first time, you have left our own world and are now in Star Wars. Just ask Lou Secchi.
4: You walk into the the place and, and you know, as a 53-year-old as a guy when I got there, I was like, oh my God, I'm really in Star Wars.
1: Or Mitch Halleck.
0: I'm literally walking around every square inch to that place and they have these little, little like, uh, panels that are done in Arabish, the Star Wars alphabet, and you can translate it with your phone. So I'm literally walking around every scrap of that place, I'm, I'm, I'm checking it out and stuff. I can't believe they built it.
3: Or Kirk Lavakia.
2: I think what they did was fantastic and as a Star Wars fan, Batu and the Halcyon are the closest you will ever get to living your Star Wars dream and creating your own character and walking thematically in costumes. It's just it's unbelievable. I still am blown away by it and it's no less impactful now than when it was when I first saw it.
1: Or Brian volk the creator of Disney Plus's Behind the Attraction. He shared the following story about visiting Disneyland while prepping for his work on the series.
0: Season one of Behind the Attraction was greenlit and we went with Disney Park staff to do a scout of the park. And, um, you know, we went to do the scout, we scouted the whole thing. And just by random scheduling, timing, whatever you want to call it, the last thing we saw was, um, you know, Galaxy's Edge. We had been there eight or nine hours. Everything was normal. Everything was fine. We walked into Galaxy's Edge and... After I would say two or about less than three minutes, maybe more than two, I looked at uh, my showrunner, Robin, and you know I said to her, you know again, this is probably something I should be embarrassed about, but I looked at her and I said to her, I go, Robin, uh, I'm gonna see you in two hours. And because it was real, it felt real. I felt like I was in Star Wars, it, it, you know, people use these fancy words like immersion and all this other crap, but it it was like being in the Star Wars universe. And I just didn't want to be walking around with my crew being asked, cause I was directing, you know, being asked all the, where do you want a camera? Where do you want to start the shot? Where, like, I didn't want my first experience with Batu to be distracted by those things. And again, as I said, like, it was the exact same reaction I had to when I got the Millennium Falcon the first time. It felt real. It was joy.
1: Our friend, Dr. Lynn Zaburnas, a clinical psychologist with an expertise in fandom, talked to us about Galaxy's Edge and how it aids in what a fan's psyche really needs that longing to connect to this fictional world.
7: It's extremely powerful. It's like the ultimate way of connecting because it really is immersion. What they're trying to do is create an immersive experience so that you can satisfy that longing to connect and to exist in the fictional world. That that is literally as close as you're going to get.
1: Remember, Dr. Zubernus is an uber fan of Supernatural and is currently in the process of releasing her newest book about the show, Not all fandoms get to do what Star Wars fans can.
7: As a Supernatural fan who we don't have anything like that, I'm super, super, super jealous. Um, But I I have had the experience, I've been on the Supernatural set and being immersed in the actual set of the bunker where the characters lived. I I was brought to tears the first time I walked into it and I was trying to be Very cool because I'm a writer on set, and of course, I'm just going to be very cool. No, I walked into it and just tears just started to run down my face because I was in this place where these characters that I care about so much actually live, where I've seen them interacting. So it's really the ultimate way of connecting with that fictional world. And the entire reason why these things were built is because the franchises know that what fans really really want is that connection so the more you can facilitate that connection the more satisfying it'll be for the fans making it tangible like that and disney is is the master at making something seamless so you really do feel like you are in that fictional world i'm sure yeah super super emotional super compelling i am extremely envious
3: Speaking from firsthand knowledge, walking into Galaxy's Edge as a fan, there's something transformative about it. It's cliche to mention the 10-year-old you coming out again, but for me, there was nothing cliche about it. It's true. My first night in the parks, we got everyone to the resort after a full day at the Magic Kingdom. Our kids were all tucked in and my wife smiled at me and said, go. So alone, I hopped the Disney Skyliner, which is their version of a sky gondola and rode through the air to Hollywood Studios. The night was crisp and dark. I walked through the old Hollywood portion of Studios, more like Speedwalk, the anticipation was killing me, down a road and past Star Tours and the big set piece at Then I turned to the entrance of Galaxy's Edge, and as I walked through, I was immediately met with John Williams' score, some of which was composed just for Galaxy's Edge, by the way. There was a life-size X-Wing, Chewbacca and Rey were running to hide from the First Order stormtroopers. People were sipping on blue milk. It was honestly a breath-catching moment. This thing that I've loved for 45 years was suddenly all around me. And not in the figurative way, but literally. I sat at a cantina and sipped on a lovely adult beverage. The buildings, droids, food, bathrooms, every square inch is Star Wars. Sure, you're there with thousands of sweaty tourists, pushing strollers, carrying Mickey balloons and wearing flashing ears. But it all somehow disappears, and you're just there. The centerpiece is when you become face to face with the icon of the galaxy to so many of us. The Millennium Falcon. I walked all around, it, soaking in every morsel of this new reality. I walked up some stairs to a cast member who led me to the belly of the Falcon. I sat on the bench with the Dajaric board in front of me and was handed a red placard with arabesque writing and a basic translation of the word pilot. Down another corridor, I entered the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon and took my seat in the co-pilot chair, the one reserved for everyone's favorite Wookiee. My team took their seats, and the Falcon lifted into the air, the views outside the cockpit showing the expanses of space before us. And on command, every childhood fantasy came true, as I grasped and pulled down on that silver lever,
1: launching the Millennium Falcon into light speed. As fans, we had reached the zenith of what it was like to be a part of this galaxy. But then, Disney Parks took it to a whole new level.
2: Let's look at it in a metaphor as a volume knob. Kirk Lavecchia. If Star Tours, or let's say just the movies and the toys and everything on Star Wars, the volume knob would be at like a two or a three. Then you get to Star Tours, and now we're at like a four. You get to Galaxy's Edge, Rise of Resistance, Ogas, Savvy's, Docking Bay, Ronto Roasters, the whole marketplace. The fact that the books are canon, and the books are fantastic, by the way, and the Halcyon then now takes our volume knob. And I don't know, I want to leave wiggle room, but it moves our volume knob to like an eight and a half or a nine. On March
1: 1st, 2022, Walt Disney World welcomed its inaugural guests aboard a first of its kind resort, the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. Called
6: the Halcyon. This ship is now under the command of the First Order.
5: Live your Star Wars story in a new two night adventure. You know what I've come for. Only at Walt Disney World Resort.
1: Guests are invited on board for a two day, two night, round the clock experience where they are completely enveloped within a Star Wars story that they are 100% a part of. Somewhat like a live action choose your own adventure. But of course, it wasn't cheap. Again, Kirk Levecchia.
2: Uh, when I heard that was a thing, I started saving because I knew it was going to be expensive. And the biggest gripe that people will say is it's too expensive. And my point is, I will never be able to do this anywhere else. So whatever they want to charge is properly priced because they own it, they have it, and they are going to create this experience. Now, it was also important to me it's not be on like trip number one, because that's like, that's all people who are just straight up trying to like, it's, it's a lot of it is like content heavy and it's, it's a little bit over the top, uh, but I wanted to be with super fans. So timing worked out with my other buddy who's a super fan. And so him and I partnered up and we went on trip three.
3: Again, Star Wars fans had found a new zenith of inclusion.
2: When I say stepping into the halcyon, and I'm not talking about like parking because where you park is like you can see the behind galaxy's edge and you're waiting at the loading dock which they're amazing like the the level of service at that resort because it is a resort of sorts right but it's an experiential storyline resort it's it's like take like dinner theater and amplify that to such an amazing level and you step into the halcyon and you are transported i was blown away by just the smell, the feel, the texture. The people that were there too were the most engaged Star Wars people that would ever be on these trips going early. Because we're the freaks. We're the, the oddballs who just have been waiting for something like this, didn't even know it was possible in our lifetime. And I refused to allow future to alter the experience. I was like, I can always go back. But I want to see it at its best or at its beginnings. And uh, when I left, I cried.
3: When they say it's a 24-7 experience,
2: it's not hyperbole. I maybe slept a total of four and a half hours during the Halcyon because I'm like, I'm getting every ounce. I spent hours just looking at things and reading things and scanning things inside the actual physical ecosystem of the ship because you're allowed to wander wherever you want. I didn't go to sleep. I slept like maybe two hours each day. I remember waking up really early. It was like six o'clock. I, I went to bed at like 3.45 the night before. I wake up at six and I went down to what they call the Batu Simulator, which is basically like an outdoor space if you're having a freak out, you know? It's like, like I just need to get out of this thing and be outside, right? And you can leave the house, yeah. It's not like it's fully enclosed uh, where you can't escape or whatever. Like you can just walk out, it's fine. Uh, But I remember going to the Batu simulator and, uh, it was beautiful that morning and it was a little bit chilly and they have all these stones that you can, you can put together. And and there is a story arc, which allows you to use the force there, which is really cool for kids, especially, but like adults too, it's super immersive. Um, and I remember just building a little structure with the stones and trying to like absorb it. And I was completely alone. And I just remember crying because I was like, I, this experience was so in depth and so rich
3: the Disney cast members are on twenty four seven too.
2: The cast members, or the crew members, I should say, of the Halcyon are some of the most impressive people I've ever met. They they have to they have to remember everyone's storylines, like my individual storyline and my name, and because like I made my own character, Wal Karkin, and I was from Batu, and I was a smuggler, and I didn't mind selling to either the First Order. Order of the resistance, whoever pays better. Like I had no real allegiance. And I went down the first order because I'm just like more dark side anyway, because I think it's more fun. Uh and it was it was so much fun being first order. And and that was and it just makes me excited for the future. I imagine because Leia and Han were on the ship as well, and there's there's little fun facts about them on the Halcyon, like they gifted the mural that's on the back on the the deck of the Halcyon. They also carved their initials in the piping in the engineering room of the Halcyon. Uh, and they spent their uh, honeymoon on the Halcyon. So like all of this is canon, again. And they have their own comic book series. Like the Halcyon has its own comic book series, which is fantastic. Galaxy's Edge has its own comic book series, which is fantastic. Uh, like it, it tells the stories of of like these little tiny minor details which make you enjoy the characters you already enjoyed, like Doc Ondar. And how he got the little tiny Sarlacc that's inside his shop. And it was Han and Chewie that got it for him. And just, I don't know. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing.
1: As we were writing this episode, and after we had spoken with Kirk, fans received some disappointing, although not totally unexpected news.
4: More breaking news from Disney this afternoon. One of its newest hotels at Disney World is about to close its doors for good. Reports say Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser will make its final voyage in September. The two-day hotel experience has been open less than a year.
1: The consumer price tag, nearly $5,400 per guest, put this adventure out of the realm of financial possibility for the vast majority of fans even for those who consider themselves ultra-passionate fans, as Mr. Hamill put it. The Wall Street Journal broke down the additional financial issues behind this venture.
2: Disney has canceled a plan to build a nearly $900 million corporate campus in Florida. It's also shutting down a costly new hotel nearby amid a high-profile dispute with the governor. Jacob Passy has been covering this story for the
6: Journal. Additionally, Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser is gonna be shutting down at the end of September. Dubbed by fans the Star Wars Hotel, this was a multi-day, multi-night experience where you got to live out your own Star Wars adventure. It was first announced back in 2017 and opened just last March and cost around $350 million to build according to sources the journal spoke to. The Galactic Star Cruiser experience came up against multiple headwinds. For starters, it was very expensive to operate. Unlike a normal hotel, it had way more employees, folks in costumes and you know characters roaming at all times. It was only about a hundred rooms, though, so Disney had tight margins on this project.
3: So, while the Uber immersive chance may not be around much longer, it's truly a sign of what this franchise is willing to do to include its fans.
1: From unwrapping your first Millennium Falcon as a kid, all the way up to piloting a life-sized version out of Batuu, the ability for fans to have a tangible connection to Star Wars is truly unmatched. And a huge piece of why we love Star Wars.
3: Why Do We Love Star Wars is produced by Brain Kick Productions. This episode was written narrated and edited by myself, Keith Padin,
1: and John Gostadis, who also composed the original music. Thank you to our guests, Brian Volkweiss, Mitch Halleck, Dr. Lynn Zubernus, Lou Secchi, and Kirk Levecchia. And thank you for listening. You can join fellow supporters of our podcast at patreon.com slash whydowelovestarwars. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to give a review and a five-star rating. You can leave us your thoughts about this week's episode and join the discussion on social media at Why Do We Love SW? And find all of our episodes and more at WhyDoWeLoveStarWars.com. Hey, I have a surprise for you.
3: Ooh, I love surprises. Boys, this is the way. My heart is just so full right now.